I was thinking about where to go with the Mother's Day sermon today, Patty suggested that I talk about my mom and the uh, lessons that the uh, my brother and sister and I learned, and I thought that was a great idea, so I wanted to start with that. My mother was always a deeply religious and principled woman, and she strove to uh, instill biblical guidance, biblical principles into my brother and sister and me. I don't think there was much of an opportunity that that passed her by. She could spot things in thin air and bring a a, a moral lesson out of it. She was just really great at that. Uh, One of the things that she did, one of the things that she talked about that still stays with me to this day, and I mean not just in remembrance, but it actively stays with me this day, is or it came from the times when we would visit other people's houses. And she would tell me, if something isn't yours, don't touch it. I learned that well. I grew up with it. And it's still, to this day, when I'm over at other people's houses, unless we're eating or something, I I seldom touch the stuff that is around. Um, I will look at things, of course, but uh, I, I keep my hands off. Now, that being said, give you an idea of how this has grown into my psyche on this, let me recount an uh, event that happened recently at my job at work. I work in uh, Huntington Tower in downtown Akron. I'm a security guard there. And a few months ago, we had a new supervisor come in, and they asked me to take him around the building. I had no problem with that. We hit it off right away. Uh, when we got up to the upper levels of the building, and the building, which is largely vacant up there, other than stuff that has been there from before, the office materials and stuff. Um, our, my new supervisor was walking around, and I don't know why, but I, I just noticed that he was walking around, and he was touching everything, just looking at things, picking it up, putting it down, picking it up, putting it down, touching it, and it's like, you know, and it was trivial stuff, just stuff like staplers and paper and, you know, paper clips and things like that. But I thought to myself, dude, those things aren't yours. Didn't your mother tell you not to touch other people's things? That thought actually went through my head. So, you know, yes, our mother's lessons stick with us, and sometimes they make us downright annoying. (laughs) However, toward the end of my mother's life, she left me a far deeper legacy than just the moral lessons that she had uh, instilled in my younger years. She and Dad spent the last days in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and when Dad died, Mom was in very fragile health and could not be moved back down to Ohio. She wouldn't have made it, so she stayed up there in assisted living uh, for the, I think, about the last year and a half of her life. Um, And at the time, I had started writing a blog uh, in order to teach the Bible and get it out into the into the wider world, and and with the site that I had taken over from another writer, uh, he said, he asked me to do devotions, and I I thought, okay, I I suppose I can do that, I wasn't really crazy about it, but I started writing devotional lessons about one a week or something like that, and then I thought, I need to send these up to mom, so I just started printing them off and sending them up by mail to mom, 
didn't hear anything about her of them for a long time. And then one night she called me up, one evening she called me up out of the blue. And she said, I've been studying your devotions, looking at the scriptures you've been sending. I've been looking them all up. And I examined my life and I realized that I couldn't outweigh my bad deeds with the good. And I put my trust in Jesus. Jesus, I want you to write that down in your Bible. Let's date it. And when she said that, her conviction in her voice was as deep as anything I had ever heard in my life. No moral lesson that she gave had ever come out with that level of force. And that day I could tell what Christ had done for her, and that knowledge gave her certainty. And she died a couple of weeks later, and I know in the arms of Jesus. Most of us are familiar, at least somewhat, with Abraham's story, even if we don't remember all the details. Abraham was 75 years old when the Lord called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, brought him to a land that I will show you. He didn't even tell him where he was going. He just said, follow me and I will take you there. He ended up in the land of Canaan. And the Lord promised him, among other things, that his line of descendants would be uncountable, that it would be so populous it would be impossible to count. The only problem was that he and his wife were childless, and they could not have children. God says, God didn't even bring that up. He just said, I'm going to do this. I will do it. Then Abraham and Sarai waited, and they waited, and they waited. Twelve years later, the waiting became too long for both Sarai and Abraham, and in a last-minute attempt to beat the biological clock, Sarai advised her husband to have a child by her Egyptian servant's name, uh, servant named Hagar. We know what happened there. Hagar produced Ishmael, and the boy and the, his mother basically split the family. And I wonder about the tensions that went on from there. I want to begin today um, in chapter 17 that Jen just read earlier. I'm going to briefly go over the points there and then jump over to chapter 21. In Genesis 17, this chapter falls 24 years after the initial calling of Abraham. Abraham was now 99 years old. Ishmael, Hagar's son, is 13, and we know from context that he is very close with his father. Meanwhile, Sarai, Abraham's wife, is left without an active role in the family. She has become a second-class family member, and for 13 years, she has probably endured an emotional famine. Then few years later, not a few years, but a short time later, the Lord comes to Abraham again. 
and speaks to him and tells him, this is where I'm going to go. And this is the part that Jen read earlier here now. First, there is a declaration from God. Sarai is now going to be known as Sarah. The Lord has the authority to give her a new name. Sarai likely means striver or one who strives. This would be consistent with her humiliated position under Hagar. Her new name, however, means princess. That is putting her high above the other woman. And it signifies God's intent to bring her to equal status with her husband. This is where I want to go today. Where does Sarai fit in the plan with her husband? God says not just once, but twice about blessing her. He says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Abraham is 99 years old now. Sarah is about 90. And a second time, I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and peoples will come out of her. With these words, God makes his intent clear. His covenant with Abraham now becomes a covenant with Abraham and Sarah. They are in the covenant together, which was always God's intent. In the second part of the dialogue or the, the narrative, we see a reaction from Abraham. He laughs. I don't think he laughs at God so much as he reacts to the sheer unbelievability of what God has said. But there's also a deeper issue behind the laughter. And this is where we get a hint as to Ishmael's position with Abraham. Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I think the idea here is, I don't want to give up my son. I thought this was going to be the son of promise. I thought this was going to be my covenant son. I can't see the next child. I can see Ishmael. I've been with him for 13 years. I've been grooming him. But as much as Abraham loves the son that stands between him and his wife, Ishmael splits the family, and God cannot have that. So following Abraham's interjection, we have God's reply. He says, again, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. In Hebrew, Itzach, meaning he laughs. Then God declares, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God's final declaration here does three things. One, it takes Hagar out of the covenant. She cannot be there because she is not part of the family. Two, it requires Abraham to set aside his plans for Ishmael and to, be, and to begin to refocus on his own family, to build his own family. And three, it finally gives Abraham a fuller understanding of what the covenant was meant to be all along. His walk with the Lord calls him to walk with his wife 
rather than with another woman. He will bear a son through Sarah, and his covenant son's name will be Isaac. Sarah begins to fall into the narrative in Genesis 17. But in Genesis 21, which occurs a year later, he will be, she will be, I should say, at the center of the narrative. I'm going to read through this. I'm not going to do a lot of depth preaching on this, but I just want to read through it. We have the introduction here, several verses of introduction. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. She has been silent for at least 13 years, probably longer than that. Now she has a voice. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is a joy-filled statement. These first, 11 verse, first seven verses feature Sarah and Abraham together. But in the next few verses, Sarah takes center stage. In verse 8, the child grew. And was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Ishmael is around 15 years old at this point in time. He is not old enough to make adult decisions in the family, but he is old enough to think for himself. And apparently, he believes that his father will not be able to sacrifice his position in the family. However, Sarah is about to speak. And it's interesting because this narrative here falls out in the same way that the Genesis 17 dialogue falls out. It begins with a statement with a declaration, but it is not God's this time. It is Sarah's declaration. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. You hear the power in Sarah's words? This is not just feminist assertiveness. This is a declaration of confidence because she knows who she is and she knows what God has had in store for her. Sarah understands her place in the covenant with her husband and she understands that she cannot hold it with anyone else. 
The narrative continues to unfold, and as in the previous segment, Abraham reacts. Very brief statement here. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. This is all we have of Abraham's reaction, but I think there's a lot here, really. There are two points that it illustrates. One, it shows the depth of Abraham's son, or Abraham's attachment to his son Ishmael. And two, it also shows the impossibility of God carrying on a covenant in a split family. God's covenant with Abraham is ultimately one that will unify nations. It must take place in unity with Sarah rather than in opposition to her. And finally then, Sarah's story becomes a, uh, contains a reiteration of God's declaration. And this time the Lord speaks on Sarah's behalf. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac your offspring will be named. And I will make a nation of the son of I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. God does not strip Abraham of his authority as husband with these words. What he does do is demonstrate to Abraham that Sarah not only has a voice, but that in this case she is in the right, and he is mistaken for his direction, and she, he has needed her to turn him, and God stands with her on that. Ultimately, Abraham honors Sarah's voice. The section concludes, So Abraham arose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And we know that there is a divine rescue there as well, and Ishmael does, in fact, become a nation himself. But the point of what we have today is that Sarah has made her voice known in her family. She has done so with conviction and courage because she is right. Let me bring this back to the beginning. My mother, as long as I have known her, consistently strove to do the right thing as a mother. She was driven by this, almost a sense of legalism. Not to say this in her shame. Everybody has difficulties that, that they go through, and this was mom's difficulty. She strove in many of the ways that Sarah strove with her family to instill a sense of purpose in my brother and sister and me. And I count that legacy as precious. But as precious as that is, 
It amounts only to the knowledge that she helped build me into a good man during this lifetime. And I owe much of that to my mother, as well as my father, of course. But my mom really did the legwork on this. But her greatest gift to me was her declaration of faith that she made at the end of her life. When she called me on the phone and told me, I want you to put this date in your Bible, she spoke with the authority of one who had come to a settled position in her faith. She had the same confidence that Sarah had when she declared to her husband, this son will not be a son with my uh, son in the covenant. She spoke as one who had rested from all she thought she had to do and recognized that all she needed to do was trust in the Lord Jesus and his settled work. Now I know that she occupies a place with my father and with our family going back generations and, and that my family going on from there will be joined with them eventually with the Lord. We set aside Mother's Day to honor all mothers who are with us. Some of the young ladies here will have yet to take on that role. Some may follow another calling. Regardless, though, of where the Lord takes you, and regardless of whether you are a man or a woman here today, you can know this. Your faith can accomplish greater things than you can imagine. But it is only trust that works. It is not the works that do the work. This church respects the office of motherhood and it honors our mothers. And I am proud to be in that tradition. But we also want to plead with you, whether you are a mother father, a man or a woman, young man or a young woman. As much as you are able to do in the light of the common grace that God gives you, it is not enough to get you to heaven. It is not enough to give you the confidence that only God can give when he works in you inside your heart with the Holy Spirit. He alone is able to save your soul from the turmoil that exists before we, we know him and ultimately from the condemnation under God. But he can get rid of that entirely, give you confidence, give you grace, give you salvation. And I plead with you, if you are not there today, if you are like my mother, coming that late in life and you don't yet know where you stand, you're still in your mind weighing the good and the bad between each other, let me tell you, it's a futile gesture. Gesture. You will not have peace until you yield your trust to Jesus Christ. And we pray that you do that today.